Okay, so last time we introduced the Gospel of John and kind of made it to the prologue but didn't get started on the prologue. I was hoping we could get most of the way through the prologue today. I don't think that's going to quite happen, but we'll, we'll certainly get as far as we can. Uh, in a lot of ways, the prologue of the Gospel of John is very much like an overture. For, for those of you that appreciate classical music, especially opera, you know, a, a good opera will have you know, quite a few you know, Im, important songs with very specific important themes that you know, are, are kind of part of that music. But for about five to ten minutes before the opera begins, the orchestra will kind of play those themes that are kind of com arranged together in an overture. The idea of the overture is to introduce the listener to, to some musical ideas that are going to become important as, as the opera goes on. The prologue to the Gospel of John is very much the equivalent in, in kind of literary terms of what an overture would be to a good opera or you know, a good kind of piece of music. <clears throat> so we easily could spend quite a bit of time you know, if we actually dug deep into the different themes that will come up in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. In general, we're not going to do that. I, I would like to look in detail at one that actually doesn't come up directly in, in the rest of the book. Uh, but, but otherwise, we'll kind of you know, see that these themes are there, but they're going to get expanded later on as we, as we go through the book. <clears throat> and one of the things that I'd, I'd like for us to be doing is to really be looking at the text and kind of thinking about the text. Uh, certainly a goal that I have with this series is to give you more confidence in your ability to kind of sit down and read the Bible and ask questions, make, make observations. And so in the first 18 verses of, of the Gospel of John, what titles or attributes does John assign to Jesus? And if we can get things working, I'll actually be able to put these up on the screen. Uh, move the table back as far as it'll go. And uh, probably a little bit of focus. Yeah. We could also just move the table over and use the whiteboard. That might actually be better. Okay. Okay. It, it's not from my angle, but uh, <laughs> that's okay, because I, uh, I, I know it's up there. Okay. So... Looking at uh, John one through or, or John one verses one through eighteen, what what titles do we see applied to Jesus Christ? The word. The word. Yes, that's actually the second one that I I, I, uh, I also in the question I've got what kind of attributes. Um, so there's there's one thing that it was kind of attributed to Jesus Christ that comes first that I'll get before we put the word up. Yeah, and I, that that's kind of getting at pre-existence. It did. Ah, it also has an on switch. There we go. Okay. I was going to be here er 10 minutes early, have all this stuff set up. Sorry about that. But yes, so it, it, very early on, you can kind of see that the, the prologue is attributing preexistence to Jesus. Uh, it refers to him as the word. We'll talk about what that means. There's another idea that's introduced uh, in the, the first two verses. What was that? The light. The light? Uh, that's a couple uh, terms down, and I can only put these up in a certain order, so that, that will come up in a second. Yeah, but he's all, 
there, there's something rather mysterious there. The, the, the verses are kind of emphasizing equally that he's distinct from God and that he is God. Um, you know, it's attributing uh, to Jesus that he's responsible for creation. Um, it says that there's life in him and light. What, what comes next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I don't have that on my list, but you know, that, that certainly is a property of the light. You know, he gives the right to become the children of God. What else does it say about this word? Became flesh. Yeah, became flesh. Did that make it up? There it is, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, I, I didn't put that down because uh, distinct from God and equal to God, I think, is, is a very similar, if, if not identical, idea. But you're, you're certainly right. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I missed that one. Um, another thing about the word is that he became flesh. The, the, uh, that, that, that's actually a one of the most significant verses uh, in here, I think. It attributes glory to him, you know, full of grace and truth. And uh, finally, last but, but certainly not least, he makes God known. Uh, the, the Greek is kind of interesting there. He exegetes God. Um, this is where we get our word exegesis, which is what, uh, how we refer to you know, going through the text and drawing the meaning out. Uh, it's the same Greek word. So we're, we're going to be looking in at John 1, and specifically, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at in the beginning. What idea does in the beginning bring to mind? Yeah, absolutely. So if you were to kind of go back and you kind of look in church history, Greek-speaking Jews would have used a translation called the Septuagint. Uh, we'll, we'll be referring to the Septuagint periodically. This is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made a little after 200 B.C. And you, in, in Greek, this is completely identical to the opening of uh, Genesis in the Greek translation. Uh, so there's, in fact, quite a few parallels that we'll see between you know, some ideas that come up in the prologue, especially the early parts of the prologue, and Genesis, and I'm just going to list these for us. I think we won't take the time to actually find them, but you know, <clears throat> so so both start at the beginning. You know, they kind of open with that you know, in the beginning, but they go back to uh, to creation. Although there's a little bit of a difference there. Genesis one starts at creation. John one goes back before creation. It talks about Jesus, the Word, being with God prior to creation. So it, it actually goes back farther in scope as well as continuing to the present, whereas Genesis 1 does not do that. Um, but in, in both accounts, the word is the agent of creation. In, in the Genesis 1 account, God is speaking things in, into existence. But here we're, we kind of see that, uh, you, that Jesus is actually the agent of creation uh, and that the connection between that and word is certainly not accidental. Life is kind of a big idea in the prologue of John. 
Life is certainly a big idea in, in creation as well. Light, light gets uh, prominent attention in, in both accounts. Um, I can't read that. Man. Um, th this one's a little bit less obvious, but if you look at verse 5, uh, there was a man called John. John didn't need to say that to specify John the Baptist. You know, he's going out of his way a little bit you know, to bring up man, which is certainly kind of a big idea you know, uh, in creation. So John is, is going out of his way here you know, to, um, to interact with Genesis 1. And when we read the Bible, we, we should certainly be aware of things like that. You know, he, he wants us to be thinking about Genesis 1 here. Uh, another difference that I, I should point out is that there isn't a seven-day framework in the, the prologue of the Gospel of John like there is in Genesis 1. Interestingly, though, when we get to chapters uh, 2 and 3, we will see a, a, a seven-day framework in, in there. Uh, maybe it's just chapter 2. <clears throat> and it, the, the last difference, which I, I think is fairly important, is that Genesis 1 really focuses it on creation, whereas John 1 is focusing in on, on Christ, the creator. So there, there are differences, but there's, there's definitely similarities. So why is it that, that John is alluding to Genesis 1? Any, any thoughts? To establish that Jesus existed prior to the... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll, we'll see that as we look in, in the text a little bit more, but I think there's something bigger. Um, you know, creation is certainly a significant event in you know, the history of everything. And I think John is saying that Jesus coming is an equally significant event, if not a, a more significant event. Uh, you know, he, he, he wants us to kind of be you know, alert to the fact that this isn't just you know, some you know, Jewish individual that lived you know, in the first century AD, that this is a huge turning point. This is you know, the, uh, the coming of the new heavens and the new earth that are inaugurated with the, the coming of Jesus Christ. Um, Katie, could I get your cell phone just so I can keep an eye on time? Make sure that this is actually showing up. Yeah. So the next thing I want to focus in on, and we'll spend quite a bit of time here, is you know, the, the title that John gives to, to Jesus. It's fairly obvious who he's talking about, although it doesn't really come out and say it right away in, in the prologue. We have to kind of think for our, ourselves. <clears throat> but the, the title is the word. First of all, this is a, a word that a lot of commentators will say would be better left untranslated. There's a lot of ideas behind the Greek term logos that don't carry over to the best equivalent they could find in the English word, word. Um, the logos, we actually get a word from, logic. So that, that tells you that there's a bit more kind of nuance to the, the Greek term. And that, that's just something that I w would like us to be aware of. Uh, and we'll, we'll cover, first of all, how you know, a, a Jew, um, kind of ideas that would exist in the Jewish mindset when they hear this term. And then we're going to look at, at the Greek, and that'll give you a little bit better of a, an idea of all the meanings that would be present in the Greek uh, version of this word. So one thing that, that, uh, that could come to mind, a lot of people would, would point this out, is that we, we have an expression. You know, 
uh, that person's actions don't match their words. And that you know, kind of speaks poorly of an individual. If we think conversely, if uh, you have a very noble individual, that person's actions should match their words. And in the case of God, you would expect his actions to perfectly match his words. And so that idea kind of might be there in you know, the idea that, that Jesus Christ is, is the word. But I, I think we could also look back to the Old Testament. A Jewish reader of the Gospel of John would be very familiar with this. And I just want you to kind of keep in mind something that Augustine said. Uh, this is about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. The New is in the Old concealed. The Old is in the New revealed. And what, what that means is that you know, as Christians, as we you know, understand the New Testament, we should be able to look back on the Old Testament and see things that are there that wouldn't have been obvious uh, prior to the coming of Christ. And so take a look at some instances where word comes up, keeping in mind the way that uh, John refers to word. So uh, we, we can find a lot of examples of, of things like this. But in Psalm 23, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. If we move on to, to Jeremiah 1, 4, this is kind of representative of what you'll see in a lot of the writings of the prophets. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. If we move on to, oops, uh, to uh, Psalm 107, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. The, the one I really want to focus in on is in Isaiah. Uh, we're just going to do 55, 10 through 11, but Isaiah 55 is a chapter that you would probably recognize the, the opening of. It's talking about the bounty in the Messianic age. It opens, you know, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Uh, it, it's a, I was really tempted just to read, you know, the, the entirety of the... Uh, the, the first part, portion of the chapter, but I'm just going to focus in on, uh, on 10 and 11. Uh, it, the word doesn't come up in 10, but it kind of should help us to understand uh, 11 because it's a continuous thought. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose it, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. The, uh, the idea of pers personifying God's word is also present in other writings that we have from that era. Now, in the Old Testament, there are 66 books that are canonical, but there were other writings that, uh, that existed in that time that were religious in nature, and the church didn't say that these were heretical and shouldn't exist. The church, the early church, considered these writings to be useful, but not inspired at the same level the canonical books were. And so you know, these books would have been consulted and would have been quoted. They're quoted occasionally in the New Testament, not this particular one as far as I'm aware. Tim might be able to correct me on that. But it, there's a book called Wisdom. And let me just kind of read how uh, the word is personified in that. For while gentle silence enveloped all things, and night was swift in its course, uh, was now half gone, 
thy all-powerful word leapt from heaven, from the royal throne in the midst of the land that was doomed. A stern warrior, carrying the sharp sword of thy authentic command, and stood and filled all things with death, and touched heaven while standing the earth, or standing on the earth. I'm not going to you get into wisdom. I have not read the whole thing. I'm not even uh, sure the, the context of this. But what I wanted to, you to see is that uh, the idea of a word, uh, of the word of God, almost being personified, is certainly present in the in, in the Jewish mindset. And I think John, in part, realized that he might be able to capture that you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he used word uh, uh, for uh, a title for Christ. But let's go to the Greek uh, thinking as, as well. We're going to go back to the 6th century BC, and there was a philosopher named Heraclitus who lived in Ephesus. Um, he's very famous for uh, saying that no one can step into the same river twice. What, what he means by that is that you know, if you take a look at the picture that he's giving, if you step into a river and then step into the same river, it's not the same river. It's water from upstream that has kind of flowed down. Everything is constantly changing. And that was a, a significant theme in his philosophy, this, this idea of constant change. And philosophically, that brought up a problem. If you have constant change, wouldn't that lead to complete chaos? Why isn't the world chaotic if things are constantly changing? And... Uh, so this is something that Heraclitus thought about a great deal. And um, I'm quoting from a, a commentary by James Boyce here. Heraclitus answered that life is not a chaos because the change that we see is not mere random change. It's an ordered change. And this means that there must be a divine reason or word. And this is a very important word in the writings of Heraclitus, and it's going to become more important in Greek philosophy as time goes on, uh, that controls it. This is the logos, uh, the word that John uses in the opening verses of the gospel. Now, the idea of this kind of organizing principle behind reality in, in Greek thinking persisted. Now, this is not inspired, but these would be ideas that a Greek thinker would be familiar with and John's audience would be familiar with. Um, you know, Plato and Socrates and the, the Stoics you know, in particular kind of built on this. And let me just uh, quote from Plato. I think I may have it. One thing that's uh, interesting, Paul, is that the history of philosophy is the oscillation between being and becoming. That's why Heraclitus is so important. Hmm. So you can okay. look at philosophy from early Greek onward, and they're still debating being and becoming. Okay. Ontology. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank that's you. That's not for me, <laughs> Let me uh, read a quote from Plato. Um, and I, I think I might actually have this there for you in your notes. <clears throat> so Plato said, It may be that someday uh, there will come forth from, uh, from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all the mysteries and make everything plain. And so you know, I don't know if John had this particular quotation from Plato in mind, but I, I think the general concept that you, know, you kind of see in this quotation from Plato is well known in the Greek world. If John wrote when he is believed to have written 80s, 90s B, BC, uh, he would have lived in uh, the Greek world for you know, 20, 30 years at the, this point. He'd be familiar with, with Greek thinking. 
And in my opinion, at least, when, when he chose to, uh, to use the word as a title for, for Christ, he recognized that there was an idea, a, a single word that would have meant something to the, the Jewish readers that would have pointed them to who Christ was. And to, to uh, Gentile, kind of Greek-thinking readers as well. And so all of these ideas may be in what uh, John intended to capture. There's certainly a lot of uh, you know, debate you know, between the, the commentators about which of these ideas were present in John. With my personal opinion, you know, having looked at, at John quite a bit, John seems to really appreciate you know, a, a chance to say something that means different things where all of those meanings... Uh, kind of point towards the reality that he's trying to point to. We'll hopefully see an example of that in, uh, in not too long uh, as, as we go through the prologue, prologue. So the reason that I want to take a little bit more time on you know, this idea of the word uh, than I, I will on a lot of other things <clears throat> is, uh, is because we don't see the word again in the rest of John. Uh, it, it's there in the prologue, and it, it kind of disappears. And so this, I think, was the appropriate time to really look at uh, what, what's going on there in, in John's mind. Uh, since that's a, a lot to take in, if you'd like to have maybe one... Uh, <clears throat> kind of quick definition for logos, uh, you can kind of fill this on, on your notes... God's self-revelation really captures, I think, a lot of what John is, is trying to say by calling Jesus Christ Logos in, in the opening of, of John. And so if you can remember one thing, I think that's, that's what I'd like you to take away from all this. Um, I believe that I've got John 1, 1 and, and John 1, 2 up. So what's John trying to say in, in verse 1? Very simple language, incredibly profound ideas. We could do a whole Sunday school <laughs> series on this. Mark Anderson has really kind of done that when we looked at, at, at God. But you, this, this is one of the clearest statements that we have that leads to the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm always a little uncomfortable saying that here because the Holy Spirit is not you know, a primary part of the prologue, so we don't exactly have the full three members of the Trinity here. But we have a statement you know, in the beginning was the word, so that attributes pre-existence. Jesus is something other than creation to Jesus Christ. The word was with God, and so he's distinct from God. He's a, uh, I, I like the way that D.A. Carson words this. He's God's fellow. Um, and the word was God. <clears throat> Very simple language that really gets at the heart of, of what's going on in the Trinity, where you have one God of, of three persons. How is the second verse different? What's the relationship between verses 2 and verses 1? Yeah, but not, not much. They're, they're almost identical. They, and John is not a sloppy writer. He doesn't say something twice accidentally. He realizes that this is a, uh, and church history really bears this out, this is a, you know, the, the Trinity is, uh, you know, an, an area where countless heresies have, have come up. And he's saying the same thing because this is important. 
if you look at heretics, they're remarkably creative in being able to take a particular verse that says something very clearly and come up with a reason that it actually says something you know, completely different to match their heresy. Uh, they're, they're, they're good at getting around the clear teaching of Scripture. And so when you see something repeated uh, like, like this, I think John really wants to make sure that this is not misunderstood. <clears throat> so if you were to look at 1 John, almost everyone ag agrees that 1 John is written in response to something called proto-Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism is a, you know, a, a kind of a Greek idea that crept into the church. And uh, a Gnostic, the, their mindset... Uh, and this comes from Greek thinking, is that you know, matter is evil, the spirit is good. And so the idea of a spiritual being, you know, God, taking on flesh, we'll talk about this a little bit more probably next time at this point, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute. Why would a, a, a good spiritual being take on this corrupt, contaminated matter? And so the idea of Jesus having you know, a, a physical body in a human form uh, is repugnant to, the, to that type of thinking. And so whether John is actually writing in response to Gnosticism or to other heresies, I'm, I'm not sure. First John, he's certainly writing, I think, in response to proto-Gnosticism, and I, it's not unreasonable to think that he's doing the same thing here as well. Also, he's combating Arians, Arianism, mm -hmm. which continues today, that Jesus is a created being, yep. and he wasn't pre-existent. Yeah. And so when Mark said that Arianism is continuing today, a really prominent example of that would be the Jehovah's Witnesses. And you know, this verse obviously is a huge problem for them. And so they'll point out that there is not an article in front of God. You know, it doesn't say that the word was the God, it just says the word was God. And so their translation will add the word was a God. Um, and the, so the, the, the thinking there is that you know, Jesus is a, is a lowercase God. Well, first of all, John really shouldn't have put the God because that kind of goes against what he's trying to get across in the distinction between Jesus Christ and God. He, John is very clearly trying to say that they're two individuals, although they're, they're both members of the Godhead. You know, this whole thing is shrouded in mystery that we will never be able to unwind. You know, I mean, <laughs> you can't say... I mean, the whole concept of the Holy Trinity is beyond our grasp. So, you know, I look at that and see he's doing his best to tell us who Jesus is, but God is, you know, inexplicable to our finite brains. Yeah, and I would not want to worship a God that's explainable. Uh, heretics do. <laughs> um, most heresies about the Trinity are an attempt to make the Trinity more understandable. And the, the, the Trinity is not understandable. Um, Son of God is problematic and difficult. I think it's somehow the best that the writers could do to explain the second part of the Trinity. But Jesus was not the Son of God in the sense that we think of, of, of birth and, and so forth. It's just, I think they just did the best they could to try to show that there was a distinction they're, they were both, they're, they're self existent, they're eternal. And that's not how we think of, of our, our sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus is in his human nature, was revealed to us as the Son. That's why we. So you take that term and you push mm -hmm. that back. I mean, you never see people referring to 
Jesus is part of the Trinity is the Son. I mean, that's the second person. Mm-hmm. He manifested himself in the Son at his birth, and that's that's how he's been revealed to us as the Logos, as God's self-revelation. I mean, that's that's where that term Son comes from. I mean, it's not because, you know, as Ralph was saying, he was Jesus of God through the Father's Son. Yeah. But as he's revealed to us in the New Testament. Right. Uh, we're getting ahead a few chapters, but um, no, 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 no. Uh, this, this is good. I'll, I'll give you a little hint about some things that we'll look at. Um, in the 20th century, we think about sonship primarily you know, in uh, terms of heredity. In the ancient world, you, know, you didn't go to school and then go to university and kind of study whatever you wanted. You learn from your father. And so sonship, you know, at least equally implied that not that you, so much you were uh, biologically descended from someone, it implied that, but it also would have you know, suggested that you learned from that individual and you, be, you became like that individual. Uh, and th- there's some really interesting ideas about uh, sonship that we'll explore in some later chapters that you know, we aren't, aren't very obvious to us, but once you kind of put yourself back in the ancient world and kind of realize how they would have thought, I, th- I think shed some light on what the scripture may be using you know, in, uh, in the title of son that's, all, that's applied to Christ. So I'd, I'd like to see if we can at least get through a couple more verses. If we uh, go to verse 3, all things were, were made through him, and was, without him was not anything made that has been made. And it, um, I'm going to break this up into two parts. All things were made through him. And then the second part of verse 3. And without him was not anything made that, uh, that was made. Um, it's really frustrating not to be able to read this. It's because I'm at, at the side of it. Um, if, if you look at those, those are really saying almost exactly the same thing. All things were made through him is saying something positively. Without him was not anything made that has been made is saying the exact same thing in a negative sense. Again, John wants to be really clear and uh, make it more difficult for you know, a, a creative heretic that wants to say something different than what John is trying to say to get around the, the clear meaning of what he's saying. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons that I think that John goes from what he said about Jesus Christ you know, being part of the Godhead in the, in the first two verses to creation is one of the important functions of uh, God is to create. And so if he's attributing creation to Christ, that's another way that he's showing that Jesus Christ is very much God. Um, so that, that I think is one of the reasons that, that John is, is bringing up Jesus' role in creation here. But there is another one. Uh, and I think I'll close with this, but this is going to help us understand Jesus Christ. If you're somewhat familiar with pagan creation myths, you don't have to be very familiar. We're, we're not going to go into detail, but they always start with a, a world that's kind of in complete chaos. You know, gods exist. There's a, a, creative, a, a, a chaotic world that needs organization. And so various things happen. Uh, usually God's backstabbing each other and all, all sorts of alliances and uh, kind of strangeness. And that process eventually results in 
kind of the, the world that we, that we kind of see today. Um, we, we could certainly say a lot more, but this is the, kind of the basic pagan view of creation. And I want to contrast that with the Christian view of creation that we, we see in verse 3. In the Christian biblical view of creation, you have an eternal God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that God creates the universe, but the universe is, is separate from him. God is apart from the universe. And so that, that's the contrast that I want you to see. Not gods that are a part of the universe that organize it, but a God that's apart from it. And we see that expressed really clearly in verse 3. Okay, I hope to get through more than three verses. I am uh, sorry about the, the delay that, and a little bit of uh, chaos that we've had our, our, ourselves this morning. But I, I think this is probably a good spot to stop. So we'll continue on and I hope uh, to, to finish the prologue and be able to move on a little bit. I know it feels like we're not very far in, but I, I spend a little bit of extra time on some ideas here that are particularly important that we don't necessarily come back to. For the rest of the prologue, since the, the ideas are really kind of the introduction of a theme that's going to be expanded later, we don't have to consider everything that we, we could about them. We're going to introduce the ideas and we'll see them developed as we move along in the Gospel of John. Uh, we probably do have time for a question or two, though. Yeah, I I was worried about whether or not to include that. It was kind of a, a long sidetrack, but I was fascinated by it. I hadn't realized, you know, you know how um, how very much like God. You know, this, this idea that permeated Greek thinking and Greek, Greek thought was. And so it was interesting enough to me that I, I wanted to include it. If anyone is interested, I could email you kind of a, about a four-paragraph section that I almost read, where Boyce, I think, really nicely summarizes Greek thought. I chose to summarize it instead just to try to condense things a little bit. But uh, I do have it typed out in my notes, and so if anyone would like to read that, send me an email, and I'd be happy to forward it to you. And that actually goes for anything else in my notes as well. I think about the power of the word, too. In the moment of life, centurions come and they ask, you know, who do you, who do you see? And he says, Jesus. And God, just in the word, and mm-hmm. the power of the word. Mm-hmm. The whole being is being exposed. Mm-hmm. This idea of the word. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'll see everyone next week.